Would you join me in uh, Acts chapter number 13? Acts 13. We're starting a new, not only a new chapter, um, but a whole new section in reality. For, for those of you that are here every week, it's just picking up where we left off. Uh, kids being dismissed. Uh, I'm not going to hit you with a big, long introduction. Just kind of know this, okay? I mentioned this last week. Anyone who has ever uh, outlining the book of Acts has 28 chapters. They're going to make a division between the first 12 and then the last 16. Um, and so we're beginning chapter 13, and there is a line of, you're going to feel a shift. I thought I was going to be preaching on 12 verses this morning, but uh, Thursday it kind of became apparent. Uh, rather than cut a lot of things out, let's just do the first three, and then we'll see maybe the next nine next week, unless the Lord wants to add verse 13. We'll see what he has in store there. Um, y'all help me out for a second. Chapters 1 through 12, what city has been the dominant city? Think about that. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, what man has been most prominent? If you had to think about it, wow. Who's been the most prominent through chapters 1 through kind of always, not always, but Peter. It's Peter, right? And so the Jews. The Jews have kind of been, again, we know about the Samaritans came to the faith. Gentiles in that section have come to the faith. But it's really been... Jerusalem has been the, the central focus. Peter's been the, the, the primary human being. And the Jews have been kind of the primary group. We get to chapter number 13 moving forward. You're going to find it's a lot about the Apostle Paul. You're going to find that this city, Antioch, that we were introduced to in chapter number 11. I'm not going to say it's like the center. It's going to be the sending agent. And you're going to kind of feel a little, little different dynamic. As the book goes on, we're going to see that Rome is kind of one of the goals. Again, geographically. Antioch is sending, this is in Syria, and kind of the goal is to get eventually at some point to Rome. And this is in the heart of this man named Paul. And the Gentiles, yes, Jewish ministry, but the Gentiles are kind of more front and center. And so with that in mind, would you join me? So here's where we left off. Uh, there was this church that was founded in the city of Antioch. And then we kind of took this side path where we saw there was this persecution down in Israel... Uh, by this king, Herod Agrippa the first, and he killed James, and he's going to kill Peter, but he puts Peter in prison. The church prays. Peter ends up being released by an angel in the night. Peter comes and lets them know in the middle of the night that their prayers had been answered, and then he leaves, and he has departed. And so that's kind of where we left off in the main story, and we saw last week that Herod, this man that persecuted the church, came to a swift end once pride had filled its heart. So now we come down to chapter number 13. Would you look at verse number 1? We're going to look at three verses this morning. Now there were in the church at Antioch. Can we pause right there? How did this church start? Christians were in Jerusalem. Earlier in the book, this persecution hit and they scattered. They started, in essence, running for their lives and they went this way and that way, but some went so far away, even like hundreds of miles away, and they end up in Antioch. And though Gentiles, were, we were brought to the faith, the first one of us was this man named Cornelius by God using Peter. And yet there were in chapter 11, when these Christians fled and end up in Antioch, some unnamed brothers in Christ end up just sharing the gospel with Gentiles in Antioch. And next thing you know, we have this Antioch church, which is... Predominantly Gentile. And so that's our setting. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. 
So I already know, as I get to the first point this morning, we're going to have some review, even going back as far as three or four weeks ago or back to the end of chapter 11, and some going back as far back as chapter number 6. We're going to have a little review this morning. So if, if you're like, hey, hadn't he preached on that? It's okay. This is good for us to ground it again. So there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, same people. I believe what this is saying is these five men each share this Office slash spiritual gift from the Lord. They're prophets and teachers. And they have great leadership. And this is a great church. This is a great church. I mean, this is one of the greatest churches it's ever been. I mean, it may be right at the top of the list. Maybe the top of the top of the list. They had great leadership. Like who? Barnabas. Know a lot about him. He popped up in chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. This man's very prominent. Simeon, who was called Niger. So they have Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, not Luke. Luke would be the Greek version of this. This is the Latin version. His name is Lucius of Cyrene, and Cyrene is in North Africa. And then we have this fourth man, Manaean. Catch the wording here. Watch. Manaean, a lifelong, lifelong, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This is not Herod Agrippa. This is Herod Agrippa's uncle. So this man would be Herod Antipas. This Herod is the Herod of the Gospels, the one who has John the Baptist beheaded. Watch again. We have Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Well, we know a lot about Saul. He's going to he'll be called Paul in next week's passage. So we have these five men. While they were worshiping, While they were worshiping the Lord. So here's the question. I cannot 100% give you the answer. Who is they? Feel that. I can't say for certain. While they were worshiping. So here verse 1 again. And you could formulate your own opinion. Now they were in the church. Church is not a building. It's a group of people. They were in the church at Antioch. So you have the Antioch church. Prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius. Manaean and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, I'm leaning toward it's the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting with these leadership obviously participating. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so in that's the setting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I've called these two to a special work. I need them set apart. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. They, you could say that's the other three, or you would say that's the other three along with others in the church. This is a moment. This is like ceremony in essence. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Can we read it one more time quickly and then we'll get our first thought? Because it's a short passage that we can do again, right? We have the luxury this morning. I've read this 30 sometimes. You've only read it once. So let's do it again because it's short. Here we go. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Serene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, would you join me in noticing that Antioch had very gifted and diverse leadership. Antioch's gifted and diverse leadership. So kind of break those two thoughts down really into three things. And this is where there's going to be a little bit of review, but I would be remiss if I did not hit these things while we're here. So number one, would you notice, let's keep moving, let's notice three things about under this first point. All this is out of verse number one. We've got three points today. Each verse has a very clear section. Any of you could read this ten times and you would have the exact same division of these verses. First thing, would you notice, Antioch's leaders were gifted by God. Anti- a simple thought, Antioch's leaders were gifted by God. So a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 11, there was a prophet named Agabus who came with apparently another other group, a group of prophets came up to Antioch and they made these prophecies. And Agabus had one in particular about a famine and we kind of saw. Do y'all remember what was said about the gift of prophecy in this office of prophecy? I'm not going to re-preach it. I'm going to hit a few things. This was a New Testament. These were New Testament prophets. Today, we have a spiritual gift of prophecy. The New Testament Again, this office of prophecy, they had the gift of prophecy, but theirs could have predictive aspects to their gift. But usually it was speaking forth boldly, declaring the truth of God. Sometimes it would be predictive in nature. Do you remember what Wearsby helped us out? Wearsby noted something that stuck with me. I don't know if it stuck with you. New Testament prophets are a little different than those who have the gift of prophecy today in that New Testament prophets received their message immediately from the Lord. They didn't have the New Testament in print. They're receiving their message immediately from the Lord, and, and what is checking them is the apostles' message. The, so the Bible's clear in Ephesians chapter 4. There are the apostles, and then there were the prophets. And then there's the evangelists. And then there were these things called pastor-teachers who came along. Elders, pastor-teachers, overseers who came. You see them coming up in the book. But you had apostles, prophets. They get their, their word immediately from the Lord. Today, those who have the gift of prophecy, of declaring, not necessarily predicting, but of declaring boldly the word of God, they're going to get their message immediately through the written word of God. God could speak to them a word, but it will definitely always line up with the written word of God. Help me out. Does anybody remember this? Someone with the gift of prophecy, their energy and thrust of their message is going to be heavy on one aspect of declaration and of looking at the text. Anybody remember that? They're going to have heavy what? Starts with an A. Anybody? Application. Heavy application. Notice, secondly, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. So these men are not only prophets, they're also teachers. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is a note I've used many times. These men have the spiritual gift of teaching, and today there is a spiritual gift of teaching. What is it? It's the ability, when reading and studying the truths of God, to understand it. So here's, here's a person given the gift of teaching. They're studying. They're having to labor. They're having to work. But as they do... They're able to understand, to make sense, to, could we say it this way, correctly interpret what the Bible is actually saying, and then they're able, because they have to get to teaching, they're able to arrange it and organize it in a way that is structured, and then speak it in a way to where people go, okay, I got it, that makes sense, I can understand that. So if you're taking notes, would you write that down quickly? So these men are, they have a great balance. The Antioch church is a very blessed church because their leadership has this balance of teaching the doctrine and the principles and why we believe what we believe, but then they're also giving a good balance of let's take action and let's do this based on that. 
So as you're writing that note, quick question. And this didn't, this has never really hit me. And by the way, I'm not going to die. I wouldn't die for what I'm about to tell you. Not the whole of it. But I'm definitely thinking that because I, I kind of, I went over to 1 Timothy and I went to Titus. The gift of prophecy, we, we link it up with speaking forth, preaching. And then there's this gift of teaching and understanding the scriptures, arranging, explaining it, helping people to learn and understand the doctrine. So in essence, you've got prophecy preaching and you've got teaching. Which one of those is a mandatory requirement of modern church leadership? Boy, that was not as strong of an answer as I was hoping we'd have. We've got to do better at teaching around here. Which one of those is the mandatory requirement for modern day elder, overseer, pastor, teachers has to be teaching. So I'm saying that I don't see, I may be wrong on this, that's why I wouldn't die for it, I don't see that the gift of prophecy is mandatory to be an elder, pastor, overseer. The gift of teaching is. So that tells me someone could have the gift of prophecy and strong on application, some understanding of scripture, just teaching it in their gift. That's, if that's all they have, they're not qualified to be an elder pastor. And somebody, because they have that gift, or someone who has the gift of teaching, is not automatically an elder pastor overseer. But if you're going to be that, you have to have the gift of teaching. But I want to emphasize this word. I'm almost done. We'll go to the second one in just a moment. It's a gift. Those who have the gift of prophecy are to labor in that. Those who have the gift of teaching, they are to labor and to work and study to show themselves approved to God. So it is work. But let's be clear on this. When it is all said and done, if an ability is displayed, it is not an achievement of their great work and labor. Though we labor in the word and doctrine... The end result is not an achievement of theirs. It's not something they've earned. It is literally God gave them a gift. Does that make sense? It's just a gift. God decides these things. It's just a gift. There's nothing to be proud about. If someone's like, man, they can really, like, really preach and call you to action and everybody's stirred up, that's awesome. Nothing to be proud about. Nothing you earned or achieved. Like, oh, wow, that person could really make the Bible make sense. The Holy Spirit is doing that. So I ask you this morning. Like I said, I, I lied. I am going to move in a moment. I just want to hit this. How many Christians should study the Word of God? All. 100%. But some, when they do, have a gift. All should study. How many Christians should declare with confidence the truths of the Bible? All. We should all learn them and declare them, claim them. We heard that this morning. Like sink our teeth into it. All. But some have a gift. When they do that, it's just like it's even more effective. How many Christians should serve the body of Christ? All. But some, all should serve. Some have a gift. How many should give? Financially, give. All should give. But some have an ability and a gift. That, how many should exhort? All. But some have an Man, when they exhort, it really stirs us up. It really encourages us. It really comforts us. It really gets us up off the map. How many should evangelize? All. But some have an ability to be an evangelist. It's the gifts of God. They had preaching and teaching in abundance. 
What a list. Could you imagine if you had a church that had Barnabas was one of its leaders? Yeah, they had Barnabas and Saul and these other three guys. What a great list. Number two, would you write this down? Still talking about the gift and diverse leadership. Now, here's one of his review going back all the way to chapter 6 when we took an aside and did a little two-part little mini-series on church leadership. The Antioch church, number two, had a plurality of leaders. That's abundantly clear in verse number one. And I don't know where you're at. My experience, this is something I had to learn, and I had to unlearn what I'd always lived in my life. And so knowing where I live here in the South and what I've experienced and some of the background of our people, I'm not going to apologize for hitting this while we're here. I would be wrong to not hit this while I'm here in verse number one. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and Saul. So they got all these leadership. And I don't think, yeah, Jeff, there were house churches in each one of them. No, there's this idea. That is, that is true. But these people know all of them. They're all looked at as leadership over the various parts and the wholeness of the Antioch church. Here's why I say this. The normal pattern in the New Testament is that local churches are led by a plurality of elder, pastor, teachers, overseers. A plurality of that. And I have a list of verses. I do not have time. If you want to go home, don't do it right now. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it's very clear there. Acts chapter 14, when they go through the missionary journey, they're going to retrace their steps and they're going to appoint elders in all the different churches. Acts chapter number 15, twice. I only put one. Twice there's going to be this Jerusalem conference and there's going to be the elders of Jerusalem, plurality of them. Paul's going to, in chapter 20, he's going to be in Ephesians, and he's going to call together the Ephesian elders, plural. Chapter number 21, at the end of the third missionary journey, Paul's going, to, Paul's going to return to Jerusalem. He's bringing this love offering, and there he meets with James and the elders. And that plants a thought. There's James. We saw a couple weeks ago, Peter said, make sure that James knows that I've got out of prison and the brothers and the sisters. So there's James and the elders 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 17. You had the elders that rule well. and They deserve a double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. James chapter 5, verse number 14. If you're sick, you have this option of calling the elders. It's not like call the elder, call the pastor. It's call the elders. And if you only believe oh, each church only should have one pastor, then that would mean these people who are sick who are calling for the elders are calling senior pastors from churches that they don't know who these people are. And these people are coming to pray for people. They don't know who they are. I contend there's a plurality of leadership that is expected and modeled in the local church. It's a plurality. So if you're taking notes, write this thought down. It is a, a review. There is, according to multiple places, but uh, Acts chapter 21, there's James and the elders. That does tell us, like, you know what? There can be a lead among equals. There can be a leader among equals. But if you're writing notes, let's be clear. And you can research it and ask me. And like, hey, I, I, I kind of see it different. Research these references, and then let's, we could talk about it. But the New Testament never models Local churches being governed by majority vote, by deacons, or by a single pastor. It's not in there. It's never like there's church discipline where churches vote. But it's not like, hey, what's going to be our stance on this doctrine? Well, all in favor. Hey, 219 voted that that's our belief. And only 203 voted that that's our belief. So we decide, no, that's not how that's settled. It's never majority vote. 
And the deacons aren't governing the church. Deacons don't govern the church. And a single pastor is not modeled anywhere in the New Testament as the proper way for churches to be governed. It's a plurality. Number three, Antioch's leadership exhibited, I could have put the word and should have put the word, united diversity. United diversity. You have the word diversity. So they exhibit diversity. All right, I'm going to take a little liberties. I think we're on fairly safe ground, but we have this list of five. You say, where do you see diversity in this list? We have a man named Barnabas. We know a lot about him already. He's a Jew. Just a log of this. Barnabas is a Jew. He's actually from the tribe of Levi. He was not born in the land of Israel. He was born on this island that we're going to next week. It's not an accident. Barnabas is apparently the leader at the launching of the first missionary journey. They're going to go to his home area. They're going to Cyprus. So he's from Cyprus. He's a Jew. He's a Levite. Apparently kind of wealthy in his background. He sold some property. His relative, some even say possibly his sister, Mary, she didn't sell her expensive house. She used it for the church. He sold his and gave it to the poor. It's fine. So he's apparently got some wealth. Probably most people think he's the oldest of this group. So he's older, Jewish, Levite, born in Cyprus. Then if you're writing notes, we have this man named Simeon. Now, Simeon, Help me out. If you have just started your Bible reading and you went back to the book of Genesis, what kind of name, what nationality of name is Simeon? Think about that. Jewish. Right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Y'all, raise, raise your hand if you've read that in the last few weeks because you just went back and you've started at, Jerusalem, at uh, Genesis. All right. So here we have this man who has a Jewish name, Simeon, who was called Niger. Y'all have a note there at the bottom of your Bibles, right? Niger means what? What does it mean? Black or dark. So I'm going to propose, wouldn't die for this, but I'm going to propose to you that Simeon is this man who has this Jewish name, but he's likely a black man who was a Jewish proselyte. So either he's a Jewish proselyte himself, again, born a Gentile, a black man who becomes Jewish and then becomes a Christian. So he's born Gentile, becomes Jewish, but ultimately becomes a Christian. So Simeon's likely a black Jewish proselyte. Then, I mentioned this earlier, we have this third man named Lucius of Cyrene from North Africa. Lucius is not just like Luke, the Greek name, it's the Latin name. So here's what that kind of, he doesn't take a Jewish name. Apparently, I'm going to throw it out, apparently he is a Gentile. And he's also from North Africa. And there's a, there's a good chance that he too is a black man. When we're looking at this church in Antioch, it is possible that 40% of their staff of leadership are black men. This is a church that has leadership, that based off its leadership, they look like Antioch. Antioch had 500,000 people and it was very diverse. And now we see this Gentile church and they have this leadership. And the leadership represents the church. And the leadership in the church obviously looks like its community. This is awesome. One of my things I would love to see the Lord do in the years to come is to cause Graceview Church to look more and more and more like Anderson County. That'd be awesome. Amen, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you to those that said that. Amen. Number four. Fourth man, third on your handout. We have this man, Manan. Just write this down. Manan, he was reared among the social elite. I mean, this is, this is Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. 
So we have this youngest son of Herod the Great. The youngest son of Herod the Great. He's going to be the Herod of the Gospels. He's going to be the one that wants to see Jesus at the crucifixion. Jesus is sent to him by Pilate. And he, say, he wants to see Jesus do some miracles. Jesus doesn't do a thing. This is the guy. This Herod, Antipas. Our guy here, Manaean, like literally grew up. Some have even said it's this idea. He's a foster brother. A foster brother. So at that point, you have like in the palace, you have a young prince. You're going to bring somebody in. No doubt there was a selection process. And this young man is going to come in and he's going to be raised up with the young prince. And they're literally going to have all the same experience. They're going to grow up together. This is a man who if he lived in America and spoke English, he would not speak like I speak. He would be proper. He wouldn't walk like I walk. I grew up in Western North Carolina. I grew up, I grew up in Weaverville, North Carolina, okay, with my family. So I speak the way that I speak. I walk the way that I walk. This guy would be proper in manners. I mean, he would have gone to all the charm classes. I mean, he would have, his life would have been surrounded by just opulent wealth. And I'm sure he had no judgment in others, but he, that's just the way he was. The elite. This is a very diverse leadership team that they have here. One side note about Manaean is you can see the sovereignty of God in salvation. There's two boys raised up. The same experiences, same education, all the same things. One ends up marrying his brother's wife, steals his brother's wife. Same guy, his brother's wife's daughter, which is his niece, dances provocatively in front of him. He likes it so much he ends up promising her half the kingdom, whatever she wants to ask. She asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. He ends up giving it to her. One of these two boys ends up killing John the Baptist, and the other ends up a prophet teacher for the Lord Jesus Christ. Same experience, the sovereignty of God. And then we have this man, Paul. We know about Paul. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Mother's a Hebrew. Father's a Hebrew. Father's a Pharisee. He was trained as a rabbi, born also outside of the land of Israel, but got mo spent most of his life being trained. What a staff these people have. And the last thought before we head to our second point this morning is this. Do you see what this means? All this together, these five pastors and the clues that we have from them, these elder prophet teachers, shows us that God's gifts, his gifting, is not bound or limited based on someone's skin color. It's not bound or limited based on someone's income or social status. It's not bound or limited based on someone's background. God just like, I'm going to give that person that gifting because I want to. And so as you're writing that, here's what that means. And we really need to sink our teeth into this. There are really wealthy people in the world who have like high doses of the gift of prophecy. There are really wealthy people in this world right now who have high doses of the spiritual gift of teaching. And there are really poor people who right now this morning have high doses of the gift of preaching prophesying, and they are some poor people who have high doses of the gift of teaching. That's God's business. What that means is there are Asians in this world who have high doses of prophesying and teaching, preaching the Word of God. You don't know it because you can't understand the word they're saying. But they are like, wow, man, that guy from South Korea, wow, God has really gifted him. That guy from Africa, wow, God's not bound by skin color. What that means is there's Hispanic and Latino, again, Asian, 
African, and yes, even some white-looking folk that have these spiritual gifts. And so what we ought to be willing to do is say, you know what? We're not focusing on our diversity. Our diversity is just an attribution to the glory of God and His ability. We're focusing on our unity in Christ, and this church had mastered that. Number two. Verse number two is about the Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Paul. The Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Paul. The setting, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So, a little bit of review. We're going all the way now. We're going to review all the way back to Matthew chapter 6. Those of you that have been here a long time. But that's so long ago you don't remember any of it, so that's fine. Question. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So how often are we supposed to fast? There is no command in the New Testament. There is no New Testament command to fast. It doesn't exist. There's no command. Oh, so we don't have to fast. There's no command to fast, but there is an expectation and an assumption by Jesus that his people would fast after he left. He said, where do you get that? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you do your acts of righteousness, be real careful. Beware that you don't do them to be seen by people. And he uses three illustrations. He says, when you give. When you give. You know, you, you give, right? Because his people would give. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And he says, when you pray. You, you do pray. It's expected. It's understood. It's assumed. My people will give. My people will pray. When you pray, you don't be like the hypocrites praying on the street real loud and fancy for everybody to see. You go into your prayer closet and pray. And when you fast, you don't do like them either and make your face all look distorted and contorted like, oh, how woe is me, look how bad I am, tell everybody you're fasting. No, you keep it private. And you keep a bright appearance, not announcing you're fasting. So there is no New Testament command to fast, but there's an assumption. In fact, in Matthew chapter number 9, here come some disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, and they've noticed something. Hey, we fast, we've been watching your guys, like they don't fast on any of the days. Do they ever fast? And the Lord's like, no, when the bridegroom is here, you don't fast while the bridegroom is here. But when the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. So there's no command there, but there's an assumption that there would be fasting. So now we have this man stopped. I have a note for you. and I'm, So here's, here's what I want us to kind of quick review. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Stott writes, if you want to start filling in the blanks, it won't be up until later. So here's this key word. He writes that fasting is linked. You already have that, I think. Maybe you don't. Fasting is linked with what word in verse number 2? Fasting is linked with what activity? Worship. And then what word in verse number 3? What, what word in verse number 3? Prayer. Y'all, everybody see that? So Stott is correct. Fasting is linked with worship in verse 2, it's linked with prayer in verse number 3. So here's a time you're like, Jeff, this isn't a real goosebumpy message. I understand. Sometimes we, we just need to be instructed and like understand. Why do we do the things we do the way we do them? Well, we have a Bible reason. And Stott is correct. Fasting is linked with worship in verse 2 and prayer in verse 3. Hear this. For seldom, if ever, is fasting an end in itself. Feel that. Fasting seldom, if ever, is an end in itself. So if this is you, hear me, listen to me, Grace View. We fasted. Okay. 
Why? Why? We fasted. Why? He concludes by saying, fasting is a negative action for the sake of a positive one. It's a negative action for the sake of a positive action. If you want to write that down, what's the negative action? It's an abstention from food, or he even offers other distraction. Maybe, again, food is the, the New Testament fasting, what is fasted. Food is, is abstained from. There are other kinds. Maybe you're like, hey, the Lord has called me to abstain from social media or to abstain from that activity or that activity. He's correct in saying the fast is not an end to itself. It's a negative thing that really is to lead to a positive thing. It's a negative action for the sake of a positive one, worshiping, praying. So can I just ask you this way? The last time you fast, fasted or the next time you fast... Why did you do it? Hear me. When the food decreased, what increased? When the food decreased, when the social media decreased, what increased? Oh, well, more football. Less social media, more football. No. It's, I'm doing less of this. I'm not going to do this so that I can focus more on this. That's the real purpose. Notice verse number 2 again. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, catch this. What kind of people does the Holy Spirit speak to? Here you have a church and a leadership group that is notably denying themselves. Hey, I didn't have this written down. No, I think I did. I kind of discarded it, but we'll say it. It is good to not let ourselves have everything that we want. That's a good thing. Don't we live in a day where it's, you remember that commercial that J.G. Wentworth, have you ever seen that one? It's my money and I want it now, right? This is America. It's my comfort and I want it now. All you got to do is look at all of our stuff that we have, that we buy and we've used about twice. And it gets put over there and it becomes in the way because now we've got more stuff. And we've got, hey, we need to yard sale the stuff. Oh, you mean the stuff we use twice? Yeah, that stuff because we've got more stuff. It's evidenced by our credit card debt and our waistline. Guilty. I'm guilty. All right. It's good. Don't just let ourselves have everything we want. But notice what happens here. You have this leadership in this church. They're denying themselves and they're worshiping the Lord. And that's when the Lord talks to them. It's as though we're going to get rid of all other distractions and we're going to focus just on the Lord. Now, I, I read something and I did not put it in, in your handout. I'm, I'm not going all the way there. I read a note. I forget exactly what it said. But it was in essence to the effect of God basically only speaks to those who are listening. I'd say Almost. Here's the problem. There are sometimes I am not focusing on the Lord. I am not necessarily intentionally listening to the Lord. And he interrupts and gets my attention in unexpected time periods. This happens to me almost every week. Almost every week. I really need one of those like um, things you put in the shower that you can write on, write notes that are waterproof. Because sometimes it's like that's when the Lord just randomly like, hey, and it's like that verse over there like... I need a piece of paper. I've got to write this down. I've got to get this typed out. 
And it's like I wasn't even really thinking about it. Now that happens, but the point this, art, this person was making was true. More times than not, who does hear from the Lord? It's those who are intentionally listening to the Lord. It's like I'm going to get rid of all these distractions. We're, going to, we're not even going to eat. We're going to just be worshiping and hearing from the Lord. And that's, that's who he chooses for the mission. That's who he speaks to to give his command and his call to action for the whole group. That's the kind of person. So I'm going to ask you right now. Do you set aside time regularly in your schedule where you like get rid of all distractions and you're like, Lord, I'm inviting you to speak and I'm actually listening and I'm going to obey what you... And then you just spend some time in his word and some time in prayer and you just let God speak. If you don't do that, you're probably not hearing from him a lot. Every now and then he may have to get your attention, but what if we were intentional? Verse 2, a couple more thoughts. And then we'll move to verse 3 in a little bit. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now, here's admission. I don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke. Did the Holy Spirit speak audibly? He could. I highly doubt it. I don't think so. Um, no doubt it would be an inward prompting. Is the inward prompting, again, here I'm going to throw options. Did the whole church get this inward prompting that, that, Saul, that Barnabas and Saul were supposed to be set apart? Maybe. Did this leadership of these five, are they the ones who get this inward prompting? Was it, throw it out as a possibility, was it one of these men who had the gift, gift of prophecy and it's like the Lord speaks to him and he's like, hey, two of us are supposed to leave. And maybe the other two are like, I'm one of them. Yes, you are. And I'm the other. Yes, you are. And the others are like, that is true. I don't know how it happened. All I know is that it happened. The Holy Spirit got his message across, and he made it clear, I want these two. I have a special mission for them. So right before I finish this little section on number two, it hit me the other day. In one of those moments, I wasn't even thinking about the message. And the Lord was like, Jeff, you know... Just because it's not in the text, you don't need to just bull through this text and not even understand. You're talking about missions, worldwide missions. What is the foundation of it all? What's the great? Don't answer out loud. Don't answer out loud. I just want you, I'm going to ask a question. I want you to start forming an answer or two or three. If I were to ask you, what are the great motivations for churches to be busy about missions? What are those motivations? I don't just really go there. I don't care who you are. I think, why would churches spend time and energy and effort and giving their lives and all their resources? Like, why are missions about, like, what is motivating? What's the great motivating factor of missions? And there's lots of them. Three came to my mind. You may have others. I thought about this one. I don't know why this one popped in my head as number one. And it was in the earlier prayer, I believe. Do you understand that what Jesus did on the cross... That act of obedience in Romans 5, that's the greatest thing that's ever been done in the history of, the, of eternity. What Jesus did. You say, I have some other motivating factors. I understand. We'll get to those. What I'm saying is, if we didn't have the other two great motivating factors, if all it was was what Jesus did was so great, it needs declared to everybody. He needs to be declared to everybody. This is the greatest thing in the history of eternity. We need to tell the whole world if that's all we had. That would motivate. That should motivate us for missions. But y'all also have the other two in your mind, right? You said, Jeff, the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Jesus says, go make disciples 
among all the people groups, all the nations, and we've not yet done that. And so that demands our Lord has said, we have this job to do. We've not yet done it. We have 2,000 years. We've not yet done it. So it obviously demands missions. And then that's the other one that most of your mind immediately went to. Missions. Jeff, there is one way to go to heaven and have a relationship with God. There is one way to escape hell. And a lot of people don't know about it. Whole people groups still don't know about it. We have to. Lostness is the reason. Yes, I dare say lostness is a great motivating factor. As well as the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He says, do it, we do it. People are dying and going to hell. They will not get a second chance after dying. They will go to hell if they do not put their faith and trust in Christ. They can't trust Christ if they've never even heard about Christ. We've got to get to them. Maybe somebody hearing that this morning. It's not stale to you. It's like a reminder and it's kind of fresh. And the Lord's like, hey, hey, that's you. That's you. You need to go. Maybe you sitting here this morning. And then what Jesus has done is so great. We've got to declare it. So the last thought, verse number in the second point, verse number two, set apart. Look at verse two. The Holy Spirit, get your minds working. Let's think. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So I'm going to ask you all a question. Based off those two words, set apart. And we know that they're going to be missionaries. They're going on the first missionary journey. In your mind, just in your mind right now, fill in this blank. The words set apart teach us that missionaries are blank. Hey, I want these two set apart. They're set apart. That tells us missionaries are blank. What could we fill that with? Different. Who said that? Was that you, Teddy? They're different. They're distinct. They're unique. Now listen to me. Listen. I'm not standing up here saying, oh, missionaries. They are the greatest Christians in the whole world. They're just like other Christians. It's what they do that is unique. There is a uniqueness to it. Hey, set set apart these two. Missionaries get embarrassed, I think, when we try to put them way up here. All they're trying to do is just obey God. Whereas some others may be not obeying God. They struggle they have the same struggles as everybody else. And if any missionary is ever watching this, they'll go, You tell them, Jeff, we're not like trophies and museum pieces. We struggle. Same as everybody. Yes. They're not different and unique like they're perfect. Their work is different. Their work is so, so here's what I got. And I'm not going to do a good job of getting this across. I already know it. So I'm going to ask you. Acts 13. You said, Jeff, chapter 1 through 12. Something happens here. Why? Why is chapter 13 new and distinct and different? What is different about it? Answer that in your head. You who study the Bible, what's different? What is different? Why are these set apart? And if you're thinking, well, it's, they're going out to Gentile ministry, is that really what's different? Cornelius got saved in chapter number 10. The Antioch church is a, a Gentile dominant church. Gentile ministry is already taking place. That's not what's new and different. You say, what's new and different? Watch. Let's go back to, you with me? Here's the Jerusalem church. Persecution hits and people go. And this per- they go here and there and there and there and there. And this is their new home. 
And some even went as far as Antioch. It's their new home. When they're there, they start sharing the gospel and people get saved. That's already been happening. What is that called? I want a word. Let's put a word to that. Help me put a word to that. Christians in Jerusalem, churches mostly bottled up. Could it be that God allows this persecution? Like, hey, y'all didn't do what I said in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. I'm going to get you uncomfortable. And, all, and they spread all around. And when they get to all these places, they start sharing their faith. What is that action called? When they move there and they share their faith and they're fleeing because of persecution and they share their faith, that's called what? Starts with an E. That's evangelism. What's new here is people aren't running for their lives. People aren't like, hey, I got a business opportunity. I got an open door over here. I heard this, and it's working. Business is going great, and I'm sharing my faith too. We got a Bible study in the house. We got a little church started. Business is good. Church is good. That's not this. This is not for business. This is not, by the way, I know you say, what about business for missions? I understand that. They're using business for the ultimate reason. This is new and different and unique because these people are like, we're not running for persecution. We're not going to start businesses. We're intentionally leaving this setting and going to another one. Would you write down what Dennis Mock wrote? Mock writes, it is sometimes helpful for us to think of evangelism as within one's own people group. Evangelism, that's within your own people group. Could I use the words your own culture, your own context? That's evangelism. Missions, he writes, is evangelism outside of one's own people group. So it's leaving and on purpose going over here for the sole purpose of taking the gospel somewhere where I otherwise would never go. I'm going to take the gospel. I'm not running from anything. I don't have to ever go there. But the Lord told me to go there just to take the gospel. That's missions. We could say missions are when the church sends people out. Mature Christians, especially called by God Christians, to go and take the gospel to a new context, a new culture, outside of their regular people group. Number three this morning. Verse number three, the Antioch church supports the first mission. The Antioch church supports. So the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas and Saul for this work. I have a special work for them. So verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So what's, what, how do they react? The Holy Spirit has said, we got to, these two are unique, their work, they're going away. So they, more fasting, more praying, then they lay their hands on them, and then they send them off. So I'm going to take a stance that not all people, that you, if you were to read this, and they may be right, but me, I'm going to offer this. I see this a little different. I see this kind of basic. To me, what verse 3 sounds like is like an ordination. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They just didn't hear the call of God, fast and pray, and sent them off. No, they laid their hands on them. To me, here's, there's two parts of this. There's those who are having hands laid on them, Barnabas and Saul, and those who are laying hands on and sending them off. I'm going to ask you a quick, real quick. Who has the most skin in the game? I just gave you two, two sets of the equation. Some are having the hands laid on them, and the others are laying the hands on them and sending them off. Who has the most skin in the game? I'm going to say the missionary. It's their whole life. They got the most skin in the game. But 
Also, those who lay their hands on them, they also have a heavy invested interest. Because they don't just release them, they identify with them. And so I believe this is an ordination. Don't you real quickly, you can unpack these later. I'm not going to spend as long as I wanted to. Would you write down four things kind of about ordination? The first and second are kind of repetitive. Number one, some thoughts we need to remember about ordinations. Ordinations are when a local church acknowledges that God has gifted and called someone to a special ministry. Ordinations are when a local church, they acknowledge, they recognize God has gifted that person and God has called that person. Yes, we see it. This person comes out like, God has called me to that. We see it. Definitely, we understand that. We can agree with that. And they put their hands on them in essence. There's this ordination, whether it be literally that or some other ceremony service. So write this down. Ordinations do not constitute a call. They recognize a call. Ordination services, that doesn't constitute, yeah, the church, they called me into ministry. No, the Holy Spirit calls you into the ministry. The church just, in essence, sends you out along with the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in verse number four. So the church is invested. While you're writing that, can I just slip one other quick thought? And it's, like, it's procedural. And you may say, Jeff, you're hitting some stuff that we really don't need to know. You never know when you might need to know this. Local churches ordain people, not preachers. Preachers don't ordain people. Universities don't ordain people. Mission boards do not ordain people. Churches recognize, wow, that person has the gift of serving, and they're very spiritual, and they have wisdom, and they're full of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to ordain them as deacons. Or we're going to ordain this person has a gift of teaching. They feel the call of God, and yes, we recognize them as an elder, pastor, overseer. And then here we see missionaries. Local churches ordain people. Local churches are the ones who see it. We can sign off on it. We've we've been witnesses to it. Does it surprise us that God's called them to do that? Number three. I'm throwing this in there because of verse number three. I'm going to propose that this action in verse number three seems to caution us against the maverick spirit. Perhaps you've heard it. It's the maverick spirit of individualism that says, I'm following the leading of the Holy Spirit and I'm serving God apart from the church. You ever run into that? Hey, you're trying to witness somebody. Oh, I'm a Christian too. Oh, great. Blah, 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 blah. Where where do you go to church? Uh, I don't really do the organized church thing. What? I don't do the organized church thing. I just serve the Lord out there in the community. Oh, you're the non-New Testament Christian. What? Yeah, you're the non-New Testament. Paul does not compete with, undermine, or ignore the church. He goes out and plants churches under the authority of the Antioch church. I'm being sent out by them. This is nonsense. And you say, man, I don't know anybody. I hear it from from time to time. We don't need anything to do with the organized church. I'm just out serving the Lord because there's too too many hypocrites in the church. Okay, you enjoy your little one-member church there because you're not a hypocrite ever like the rest of us. And then number four, they laid their hands on them. You don't do this lightly. Hey, I do this activity in the church. Can I get ordained? Don't you like, can't you possibly like claim like some housing on your taxes and get a little break? Oh, what are you doing there? Okay, yeah. Write it down. This is not to be done lightly because the ordaining church 
is the eyes and the ears of future churches who are taking their word for it. In my office is a piece of paper and it has eight names written on it. And I just noticed a while ago four of them have gone on to be with the Lord and four are alive. But those eight men did not ordain me. It was Bethel Baptist Church ordained me into the ministry. And Bethel Baptist Church, after being evaluated by these eight people, signed off that, yes, we recognize a certain call. And so when I came to this church, this church is in essence saying, well, apparently that church saw something, so we're kind of taking their word for it, and let's, let's see if we see it too. This is a serious thing. It's not a lighthearted, hey, ordain that one, ordain that one, give that one a title. That one's a pastor, and that one's a pastor. And I'm like, no, no, stop it. It needs to be clear. It needs to be biblical. So then kind of the last two things I have here this morning. And again, this is an odd style sermon, I understand. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So y'all know that I'm no Greek expert, right? You know that. I've said that over and over. Those last three words, they sent them off. My understanding, not from very many, a couple that I read, that could mean they've released them. And so some took this stance. The Antioch church released them from their duties. I don't think that's what that means at all. One of the uses, one of the possible uses it could mean to release. I'm going to say it is not that use in this text because they laid their hands on them. They're not just like, hey, you're free from your duties here. We're kind of cutting you off. You go do your thing. No, it's the opposite of that. They laid their hands on. When you lay your hands on someone, you are identifying with them. You are endorsing them. You're in essence saying your work is going to be away from here. And so you're going away from us, but you're not leaving us. We're still connected. We are connecting ourselves with you. You're going actually with our support. And I believe that's what the laying on their hands and the sending them off means. We are sending you off with our support. What kind of support? Prayerful and financial support. I think that's your last note. Is that right? Oh, no, no, that wasn't a note. I meant for it to be a note, but I ran out of it. space at the bottom of the paper, which happens every, every week. They didn't cut them loose. Bye, we're going to miss you. No, it's, wow, let's gather around. These are our people. F.F. Bruce words it this way. Hear it, listen. He says, Antioch recognized them as its delegates. You're our delegates. He writes, they were sent out by the whole church. And it was to the whole church that they made their report when they returned. You're going to see that at the end of chapter 14. When they get back from missionary journey, the church is going to be gathered together. And Paul and Barnabas are going to feel compelled like we need to report. Because you're the ones that's been praying for us and been supporting us. I believe they supported them financially. And they certainly supported them with their prayers. You've heard it worded this way. While you're down in the pit of darkness in some foreign place. That's not your normal context. You're not by yourself. You'll not see us, but we're going to be holding that rope. We're going to be praying for you. And we're going to be supporting you. You let us know what you need. You're our delegate. You're being sent out by us. You're not a maverick, you know, individual. No, you're one of us. They identified themselves. So this was the last thought. Verse number two, would you look at it one more time? The Holy Spirit said, set apart, set apart. 
Based on that, I want you to listen. Not, so listen carefully, not all Christians are called to be missionaries in the technical sense. You say, Jeff, we're all sent out by God. I, I know we're all sent out by God, and He places us, He scatters us around. Not technically in this sense, not all Christians are called to be missionaries sent out by the church to leave their context and go to another context. But, hear me, all Christians are called to share their faith. To hear it again, not all Christians are called. We've got a room full of Christians this morning. Not all of us are called to be missionaries, but we're all called to share our faith. So if you're like, I'm a silent Christian, you're not... You're not doing your job. You're not doing what you've been called to do. We're all called to share our faith. Most of us through evangelism, where we're at. But some as missionaries. All called to share our faith. Not all are called to be missionaries. All in some form of evangelism. And the, the message is the same. Whether it's here or out there. The message about salvation is the same. It's faith in Christ. Confessing and repenting of your sins. Trusting Him. You've got to hear these things and put your faith in the message of God and the Son of God. The message is the same. But if it's done here, it's evangelism. But if it's missions, it's when a person leaves their context, goes to another context, and then starts performing evangelism in a different setting. Last thought. It's going to sound similar to the other one. Not all Christians are called to be missionaries. Hear me. But all Christians are called to take part in missions. Not all Christians are called to be missionaries, but all Christians are called. You ought to be hearing this right now. You ought to be saying, hey, I'm not checking out because it's 12.04. What does this mean? We're all called to share our faith. Have I been sharing my faith? Number two, we're all called to missions. Yes, some go. If you don't go, well, then you're this other two category. You pray and you give. So which side are you on? Are you in the going group? Let us know. If you're like, God hasn't told me to go, well, then you are in the praying and the giving specifically for missions group, right? You are in that group. Everybody in here needs somebody to intercede for them. Life gets tough. I'm thinking of John this morning, waiting on a room to open up in the hospital in Greenville. We need to get him up there. You ought to intercede for him. I know several of the men are, and some ladies as well. Y'all know that we all need prayer. I need prayer. I need, I need people interceding to God for me. If that's true of me, how much more true is it of missionaries who are out of their context in a foreign land trying to do a massive work that is very difficult, very lonely, often rejected, being opposed by demonic forces more than what's happening here. They're trying to break new ground. Don't you know Satan's attacking? If we need prayer, how much more do they need prayer when what they do, it's usually very slow to progress? You know they need prayer. And I don't want you to take what I'm about to say as like, okay, he's diminishing giving. I am not diminishing giving. You're either going or you're praying and giving. Praying is not the least. Praying is not the least. I have two people in mind when I was thinking this thought. If the day comes and your money's all gone and you don't have the physical ability to do any service for the church or for the Lord, 
In fact, people are having to physically do for you. You know what I'm saying? People are having to do for you. The money is gone, and you can't do anything physically. You can't go. You can still, you can still have a very powerful ministry by praying for specific missionaries and missionary projects. I'm not talking about playing games this morning. I'm talking about something that's, that really works. It makes a difference. They may not know you're praying for them, or we have this thing called the Internet. You may let them know that you're praying for them, and you may say, Hey, I'm not praying for 100 missionaries. I'm praying for four, and you're one of them. I need you to let me know. I don't have any money to send you, and I can't come and help you physically. I am going to be praying for you. You are on my re- Prayer is not the least on this list. So you say, that is giving the least? I'm not diminishing giving. I will say thank you to all of you who are faithful to give to the Lord here at Graceview. When you give to the Lord at Graceview, you are supporting 21 missionaries specifically. And we also partner with 47,000 other churches, and we do this thing called Lottie Moon every Christmas time. And I think that check goes out this week. Last I heard, we were almost at 20,000. We've had over 20,000 in the last two or three years, and I don't feel bad about that. I'm not guilting you. All I'm saying is we're like a hundred and some dollars short of that, so if you'd like to take part in that, like, wait a minute. I'm, God has not called me to do that. I need to be busy praying for our missionaries. Jeff, I need you to get me, or, or Connie, or Renee, I need you to get me one of these things that has our 21 missionaries listed, our projects and missionaries listed, and specific ways to pray for them, and I'm going to start praying for one a day, and I need you to get me one of those prayer maps. This is not the actual one I use. I use a similar one like that that's in my devotional Bible. Say, I need me to get me one of those where I'm praying for one of the countries every day. We've got to start getting serious about we're really going to pray for missionaries. We're not just like sending them off. Hey, we're going to miss you. Hope it goes well. No, no, we're with you in this. We're with you in this. We'll be holding the rope. Heads bowed. Eyes closed just for a moment. I'm going to pray. And right before I do, Be honest, do you set aside times where you deny yourself other things so you can worship the Lord and listen to Him? Do you deny yourself? Say, I would really like to maybe do this or sleep in a little longer. You deny yourself that so you can get up and like, Lord, I'm going to read your word and I want to pray. And in that, I'm asking you to speak. And when you speak, I'm going to obey. So here's what I'm wondering. When you listen to the Lord and He speaks to you, do you obey what He calls you to do? You don't need to raise your hand this morning. But is there someone here this morning, you're like, man, there it is again. God has called me. He's put something on my life and in my heart that I know it is Him. And it keeps coming back but I've yet to obey it. I love these two guys, Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit said, I want you to separate them and they're going to go do a great work. And they left. They were separated and they went out. They obeyed. Do you obey when God speaks to you? My last question is this. When God, listen to me, when God disrupts your life by calling someone you love to serve in another context... Do you get angry and bitter about it? Or do you like, wow, I'm not going to talk them out of it. I'm going to support them. I'm going to support them. I'm going to praise God for it. 
our kids ever come and say, hey, I think God's calling me to do that. Wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast and pray with you about that. Let's make sure that is the Lord's will. We don't do this lightly. Well, the Lord took that person. Man, we really enjoyed them. What great gifts they had. And now God's moved them away. No, we celebrate those things. We support it. We accept it. Do you obey the Lord when He calls you? When He calls someone you love, do you support it? Father, this is a different kind of a text today. You had us review some things and talk about some procedural things, very different. But Lord, I pray that in all of it, we would walk away this morning expecting to hear from you because we set aside times inviting you to speak to us. And Lord, when you speak to us, help us to have hearts that are just ready. We're going to obey you. We are going to obey you. And Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us that we need to be somewhere in that equation. Lord, impress all Christians here. We need to either need to be going if you've called us or we need to be really praying specifically for specific missionaries and supporting Lord, I pray that we'll be obedient. I pray that we'll be motivated by the greatness of what your son did and what you did. And I pray that we'll be motivated by our Lord's command. And I pray we'd be motivated by the lostness of people, some of which are headed to an eternity, separated from you if no one ever comes and tells them. May that burden us. May you cause that to burden us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Have a great week. If you're going to take part in the home groups in whatever ways fit to you, would you please fill that out? You can drop those in the boxes on the way out. Thank you.